So we're talking here, this is our second sermon this week on crazy makers. And we're going to be talking about something that's rather challenging and rather sensitive because I'm going to be talking about inappropriate leadership. A lot of people get hurt or driven crazy by inappropriate leadership, especially when people are pinning their habits or their aspirations, their theology, uh, their vision on scripture, which is being inappropriately used. But before we go there, I'm going to describe to you um, my job description on how to be the perfect pastor. It says, the perfect pastor is one who will be able to please everyone in the church and meet, meet, meets each church member's expectations. The perfect pastor speaks the truth, stands up for injustice, but never steps on anyone's toes. The perfect pastor preaches an inspiring sermon every Sunday that makes you cry, laugh, and think deeply about everyday life while still managing to finish the service in under an hour. It won't be happening. The perfect pastor works from 8 in the morning till 10 at night, doing everything from preaching sermons to sweeping. That's good. Oh, the only problem is that we start at 6. So it's the, the perfect pastor is 36 years old and has been preaching for 40 years. <laughs> the perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with the youth and children and spends all his time with seniors. The perfect pastor has a keen sense of humor while keeping a straight face that shows serious dedication to all tasks. And the perfect pastor makes 15 calls a day on church members, spends every free moment sharing Jesus with the non-members, and is always found in the church office when needed. Yeah. It's not my job description, actually. That's a bereavement notice. <laughs> True. Right, so I'm going to hit it straight where it, um, where it hurts and where we so often find uh, challenging leadership pinning their hopes upon a particular verse. And it starts off with this verse here. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. Okay, it's a great little verse to capture because it sort of sums up everything which, you, which somebody who's threatened wants to say. Is that, Don't touch me. If you touch me, uh, God will waste you. You know, it's like, I'm here. I'm God's man or woman. And this is the end of the story. Uh, you've got two choices, like it or lump it. All right, so how did this verse become misused. We need to put it back in its context. And a lot of you will be familiar with these little stories that I'm going to share with you today. But it starts when Israel first had its, had its first king, King Saul. Samuel, the prophet, um, went to Saul. Saul was this guy who was every, somebody everybody looked up to, literally. Apparently, he was head and shoulders above everybody else. Fine-looking guy, but like Pastor Rob. And um, Rob, about six foot eight. And um, <laughs> And they went to him, and Samuel anointed him and kissed him and said, now you're the boss. We like this. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Okay, so there's this, this blessing, this anointing, symbolized in oil, but obviously it's a spiritual contract that God is making with uh, Saul, in this case, to be his leader for the people of Israel. Now, if you know the story, what happens is things start getting a bit strange because Saul's not doing a very good job. And so what happens is Samuel finds another young leader in David 
and anoints him as the successor to Saul. So already you've got this uh, planning going on as to who's going to be the next king. But David didn't want to get ahead of God, even though he knew Saul was doing a poor job. But Saul was threatened by the fact that this young guy was going to ultimately replace him. And so he set out to kill him, set out to kill David. And he took his armies down these valleys to try to hunt David out. And uh, God did an amazing thing on this particular occasion. What he did was he essentially put the, the, the army to sleep. And uh, Abishai, which is David's armor bearer, and David went into the camp and they stood above King Saul while he was asleep and they had this conversation. Here's the conversation that went. It says this, Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. So he's pretty committed to this, right? But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. So if you know the story, what happens is they grab the water jug and the spear they move out of the camp, they get on top of a cliff and they yell down and David starts telling off the army. He says, you guys are useless. I could have killed your king. You know, you all deserve the sack. And then David sort of goes, hey, is that, uh, sorry, Saul goes, is that you, my son, David? And he goes, yes, I could have killed you, but I haven't. And the reason why he hadn't is because as you see in the scripture there, David recognized that Saul still had this anointing upon him to be king. And he said quite clearly there, it says in verse 10, as surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish, which he did. He died in battle. And so here is David living in this tension of knowing that he's the next king. This king that he has to serve is doing a bad job, but he has to be patient. He has to wait. Um, so this is where this understanding of don't touch the Lord's anointed is coming into being. And uh, let's see, there's a few other places here. It says, do not touch my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. And this appears in Chronicles here because what's going on is as God is sending his prophets to speak to the nation of Israel, they're being disregarded. In fact, worse than being disregarded, they're being killed. Because what we've got to understand here is when you say don't touch the Lord's anointed, that word touch is actually code word for kill. Don't kill the Lord's anointed. Okay, because it was pretty black and white in those days. If you didn't do it well, you got killed. Simple as that. Okay, Keeps you on your toes. Um, so what we're experiencing here as we read about the Lord's anointed and how these folks aren't to be touched is that we're actually looking at this from an Old Testament value or vision of what leadership was about. You see, within the nation of Israel, they had a theocracy. And a theocracy is Theo, God, is at the top of the tree. And his nation, the nation of Israel, is centered around kings, priests, prophets, largely. Kings, priests, and prophets. And by being so, they define themselves as a nation under God, a theocracy, a nation under God. And one of the challenges that we have within Christendom is that we look at a theocracy and we try to apply the same principles of theocracy whilst we live in a democracy. Okay? So we have people saying, if we can just get Christians into parliament, the world will change. 
and we'll become like the nation of Israel. That's not the worldview we have because that's not the reality that we have. Okay? So what's going on here is that we've got a, a vision of leadership that exists around a theocracy, the making of a nation under God. But what happens when Jesus turns up is he's not building a theocracy under, sorry, he's not building a theocracy in the context of a, a nation called Israel. He's building the kingdom of God. Completely different deal. He changes everything. And so Jesus dismantles the Old Testament power structures and mindsets to set up the kingdom of God. All right? And so when we're reading the New Testament, what we're seeing is that there's a whole community in transition. It was a power-based system. Jesus had to confront that when he confronted Herod. Uh, he had to confront that when he confronted the Pharisees, etc. And it was ultimately this old system that put him to death because they were into power. So let's have a look at some of the things that Jesus said about this New Testament mindset. He said this, Jesus called them together and said, that's the 12, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, full stop. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, so there's a reversal here, isn't there? First of all, you're being told that if you're going to be the boss, you've got to be a servant. Okay, so it just seems like a complete contradiction in terms. So if you're going to be the one who God values as a leader or a servant, you've got to be the one who serves everybody else. Uh, so let's have a look at what Jesus said about the Old Testament. He said, so in everything, do to others what you would have do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets, here, what we're talking about here is the Old Testament writings. All right? Recognizing that the New Testament was being written because Jesus has turned up. When it comes to summarizing something, you're looking for a definition which wraps everything together. Okay, so many of you will go to a movie or watch a movie on Netflix or telly or something, and then you will describe to each other what it is that your summary is about that movie. And people see things differently, don't they? And so you're going, really? Did you enjoy that? I didn't like that at all. Oh, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you know how it goes. So what Jesus is doing is he is summarizing the Old Testament for us. And he is saying, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So what Jesus is doing, he's taking the Old Testament writings and he's flipping them on their head because it was always about servanthood. This is what he's saying. It's always about servanthood. You know, the word that we have um, for minister here in New Zealand or in the English world actually is interpreted as servant. That's technically what a minister is. So a minister of parliament is a servant in parliament. Prime minister is first servant, which is ideal, isn't it? You're wanting someone who's in that role to be the first servant of the nation. And uh, that's, that's by definition their role. But what we've got here is a picture of what it is that Jesus is trying to translate the kingdom of Israel into to become the kingdom of God. Let's have a look at this. A far easier illustration. When he, Jesus, noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, 
give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Which actually answers the question, doesn't it, today? Why there are more people sitting in the back seats of church than the front. (laughs) You're just waiting for me to say, friends, come up and take the better seat. Isn't that right? And I've been missing this for 25 years. So if anybody wants to move, we'll we'll honor you. But maybe next week, you can just grab it for yourself. Um, Peter also had similar things to say about Christ and the role of what it means to be a servant leader. He says, to the elders among you, I appeal as fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So a picture here of transition. You notice it says some really strange things in this piece of scripture. It says, um, and you elders, don't be um, getting into dishonest gain. You know, it's like, what do you mean? You're having to warn an elder about ripping people off? There's a church that's being formed here by people who are far from God becoming Christians. There's a church here that's being formed by people who had a mindset of top-down, take authority, take, take opportunity when it comes your way. And so what's happening is Peter is instructing these people that they have to, too, be like the, the chief shepherd, okay, the chief shepherd who looks after the sheep. So Christ gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and became mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So here we have a picture again of a completely different worldview that's happening. You see, what's going on is that we don't have any more of this top-down authority happening where somebody who's anointed as king, whether they've uh, got the ability to do it or not, that comes through a bloodline, anointed as a king, ends up being the ruler of the nation. What we're being told here is that that's all gone. We are now a people who are acknowledged by God and by each other for the giftings that we bring. And every one of us has a gift to bring. Every one of us has a gift to bring. And um, what we're doing is... um, What we're doing is we're allowing God to choose what it is that we do and how we operate within the life of his church. And as I read the Bible, there's nowhere it says that there's a gift of doing nothing, okay? Because everybody has something to bring. And if you think that you don't have anything to bring, firstly, that's wrong. And secondly, what you're doing is you're robbing robbing others of your gift. Yeah, you're not. It's a bit like going to a potluck dinner and not bringing anything. Hey, young adults. But like, <laughs> yeah. I follow Jesus. I live by faith. <laughs> faith that somebody else put the potatoes in the pot. 
So, so we all have gifts, and the idea of leadership is to release, empower, enhance, celebrate, give opportunity to all of those gifts. That's a beautiful thing, and it's complete reversal of the power structures that we saw in the Old Testament times and uh, even around us today. But just look at how Paul finishes this passage here. He goes on to say some remarkable words. He says this, Then we will no longer be infants. In other words, we grow up, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Paul is talking about us. He's talking about you. He's talking about the church. He's saying that Christ is the head of the church, and we all are part of this body. Okay, and the beautiful thing I like about this picture is that everybody has a part to play. Now, it may surprise you, but I will compare this to a rugby team. Okay, funny that, isn't it? But in quite literal terms, a rugby team pretty much has a place for anybody. It always makes me laugh when you have the, uh, the team lining up with the national anthem, right? And uh, the shortest guy on the team in the All Blacks is Aaron Smith. He's about this high. Well, he's probably about my height. They're just all monsters. He looks short. And he always gets himself under the wing of um, Sam Whitelock, yeah. And it just looks like this little and large comedy show going on, you know. And then you've got those guys with no hair and no neck, you know, and they're just like, mm. like that. And they hold on to each other because they don't know where they're going. And as long as you turn them around at half time, they're okay, okay. And then you've got the, the little wingers, you know, the fast little guys. Slick back hairdos, you know, only go to the barber three times a week. And, uh, and they run in all the tries and they dot the ball down, never get their shorts dirty while the forwards had their heads kicked in. And uh, they get all the glory and the girls and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the boys just get to... Anyway, we won't go there. I, need... <laughs> I was one of them, so I need, clearly need counselling. But, eh? Well, I finally did, honey. Yeah, I did. <laughs> You do, yeah. I've got no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Actually, yeah, well, I was playing rugby league in the UK when we were living over there, and Michaela was the only woman allowed to go on tour with us when we went on tour, because everybody liked her so much, and she was our lucky charm. And I think half, half a dozen Australians would have run away with you if I'd given them half a chance. <laughs> anyway. For any Christian leader to claim an untouchable status is contrary to biblical principles. It's absolutely, just doesn't exist. Now, untouchable, how does this apply to us? We could pretty well swap the word out as unteachable. Unteachable. You can take that home to your family. You can take that home to your work. Take that home to your schools. Take it home wherever you be. If you are unteachable, it's the same as trying to say you're untouchable. Does that make sense? Because if you're not teachable, it says that you know everything, your middle name is Google, and you've got nothing to learn from anybody else. Unteachable and untouchable are essentially the same sort of thing going on, just in a smaller, smaller uh, context. 
And so it's really important for us to see that this is something that is vital for all of us to get our head around here. This isn't just about kings and priests and prophets who think that themselves are, think, see themselves as being exceptional. Uh, back in 2002, which is now 19 years ago, I went off to Willow Creek Church in Chicago to do a mentoring seminar there to learn about how to be a pastor, essentially. And uh, it was for churches that were on the move, were growing, and I got invited to go. So it was a very exciting time for me. I'd never been there before. And um, anyway, there was about four New Zealanders on this trip who were um, part of this contingency of about 60 who had this week of mentoring. And one guy who was um, from down country a little bit, uh, he turned up in the car park with this Trans Am, five-litre Trans Am, Kiwi guy. And I was like, dude, that's some car. I know that would have cost you a fortune. He goes, yeah, yeah that's all right, you know, God's good. He, God knows the trajectory that he's got me on, so he wants me to drive a flash car. I'm like, oh. The Baptists had all hired one car each, uh, one car between us all. It was called Rent-A-Wreck, and uh, we were too... We're too miserable to get a GPS, so we got a tour of Chicago in ways that other people never, ever got a tour. I can remember it snowed in the car park one day after class, and we didn't even know where our car was. The car park is so vast and so many cars. And so we think, we think it's over here somewhere, and because it was a white car and it snowed, and so we walked along with the remote on the boot click and wait for the boot to pop up. Oh, there's our car. But anyway, this guy with the Trans Am... Um, I was a bit suspect about it, and, and what happened was every time we'd have a break, he'd be on the phone, and he'd be talking to people back in New Zealand about what he'd learned. Now, back in 2002, when you picked up a cell phone and dialed New Zealand, you were doing $5 or $10, minute, $5 or $10 a minute uh, every time you spoke to somebody. And I said, mate, that must be costing you a fortune. And he goes, oh, yeah, well, the church is going to pay for it, but that's all good because I've got to live the way in which I want to live because of the trajectory that we're on as a church. And, you know, we're going to be a, I'm going to be a mega pastor and we're going to have a mega church. And so God wants me to have a Trans Am and have a cell phone that charged up to some other account. I'm like, I said, oh, you know, well, whereabouts are you? What church are you involved with? And he told me the name of this obscure little church. I said, how many people go there? He says, oh, about 60 on a good day. And I was like, Okay, well, within three years, the whole thing had just dissolved, just completely dissolved. But I was looking at this guy and I was thinking, there's a mindset there that has been created by a level of expectation that somebody has planted in his head about what it means to be successful as a leader. And it looked a heck of a lot like an Old Testament, Old Covenant mindset, not a servanthood-oriented, Jesus-seeking servant, eh? Now, you know, the, the challenge that I have talking about this today is I, I don't want to start throwing people under the bus. But um, what I want to do, though, is just take an opportunity to explain to you how it is that we can go through stages of faith development and we can get caught in certain places in respect to our faith. Now, back in uh, my college days in the 90s, we got introduced to this chap by the name of Stephen Fowler. Stages of Faith is the book that he wrote. This is a similar model to others that you'll see around about how faith develops. But um, I've taken a book and condensed it to about 20 words. So forgive me for the simplicity in which I'll talk to you about this. But it talked about stages of faith, not ages of faith, but stages of faith. So the first one is stage one and two. And I summarize that by saying it's copied childlike faith. Um, We've had 
our daughter and son-in-law stay with us over the last few days, and we've got a two-and-a-half-year-old grandson, Jimmy, and an eight-month-old grandson, Toby. And um, when their mother is busy doing dinner or something and wants to distract Jimmy, she'll put up on the, um, on the YouTube a song called The Blessing, which is popular. In fact, we're going to sing at the end of the service. It was completely unplanned, but it's the way it's going to work. And what happens there is the two-and-a-half-year-old two just loves the song. It's just on repeat. He just loves it. And he's there, and he's lifting his hands, and he's closing his eyes as the song sings over him. And it's just a beautiful thing. But, of course, he's learnt that from other people. He would not be able to give you um, a theory or a theology on the atonement. He wouldn't be able to explain to you the resurrection. Uh, he just is copying what he's seen other people do in, in respect to worship. It's a great thing to do, great way in which a person learns how to live the faith. So that's a childlike faith. Fowler then explains um, a stage that we go through when we're teenagers, largely. But it can carry on for your whole life. And that's a black and white faith. And uh, life becomes very simple in this stage. It's like you've got the truth, the truth will set you free, hold on to the truth, you'll always be free. And you apply biblical principles to, to life settings that work for you most of the time. Most of the time. And that's the challenge, is that it's most of the time, not all the time. And often centered around this sort of thinking or teaching is a, a strong leader, a strong personality, who basically can reaffirm for you what it is that you want to believe and how the Bible is interpreted quite simplistically. And people are happy to live there. There are a lot of people who live in an environment like this, a church environment like this, where they've got a very strong leader who is basically like a, a tribal chief for them who will explain to them how the world works in very simple terms. And when it doesn't quite fit the picture, they sort of disregard it. But people grow through this. And this is what happens is when we get to a stage when we go to university or we leave the youth group and we're finding that there's a few more questions that need answering than my current way of thinking actually helps me answer. And this is where we get this fallout. Don't, don't think that university is this horrible place where the devil hangs out and steals all our children. The devil hangs out because we don't create enough tension within our faith life to give ourselves room for things that are complicated or things that haven't worked out yet. And if you want to get an idea of what this looks like, just go to the book of Psalms. There's about at least 100 of the 150 there that talk about the tensions or the problems that exist when I see my enemies prospering over me, when I see God blessing the unrighteous, when I see things that should happen but they don't happen, when I pray for those who I want to see healed and they die, and you go, I think God's given up. I think God's on holiday. So you, your faith just becomes something that's not reconcilable to your experience and people walk. That's what happens. People walk. But if we allow room for this sort of discussion, for these doubts, for this level of honesty to exist amongst us, and we're allowed to have faith that exists in the grey, not the black and the white, you don't need faith to live in black and white, you need faith to live in the grey when you're living in the in-between, when there's no answer, but you're just holding on to God because you know God is good and he's proven himself in the past and you're just waiting for him to prove himself in the future. This is the tension where faith exists. This is the place where faith exists. You don't need faith for a yes or a no. Does it make sense? Yeah, it's when things 
are still in process. So we need to create space for that, for those questions, and not necessarily have all the answers. Stage five is this integration of tensions within a biblical worldview. And the biblical worldview is to remind ourselves that we live in a fallen world, so therefore our simplistic view of life isn't always going to meet um, what it is that God will do. We live in a fallen world. But we also come to grips with the unique quality or the unique place in which we fit into the body of Christ. Remember I mentioned earlier on about how the body is made up of all these different gifts. You've all got them. And you might not reconcile everything about the whole universe and the church and the big questions, but you know where you fit in. You know that you've got a passion for mission. And so therefore, that's your role. And uh, whilst you don't have all the answers, you realize that you're part of something bigger than yourself, something amazing, something beautiful that you can contribute to and fulfill the purpose God has for you. Okay, so you live with attention. And then Fowler put this other stage, which he said very few people reach. He mentioned uh, the Apostle Paul, and that's why I put the scripture in, to live as Christ and to die as gain. That was Paul's sort of summary of when he came to the end of his life and he was saying, well, you know, to be with the Lord is great. To be with you guys here on earth is great as well. So to live as Christ, to die as gain. And uh, he cited people like Mother Teresa, who lived in that, that place of um, finding her fulfillment in sacrificial service to the poorest of the poor in India. So there are stages of faith. And the reason why I raise those is because um, leaders who are quoting don't touch the Lord's anointed are usually floating around this level three area here because they're wanting to build a community that celebrates not only God, but them. Yeah? They want, they want to be in a, in a key role where they feel that they have this anointing like a, an Old Testament prophet or an Old Testament king. And whilst I, I don't, I'm not trying to diminish somebody having a, um, a, a level of confidence about what they do, you're just stepping into dangerous territory here. Because we don't live in an Old Testament scenario. We don't live in a theocracy. We don't live in Israel. You're not a king. You're not a priest in the traditional sense of the word. You're part of the body of Christ. And the part of the body of Christ is that we're all equal to one another. We just get to do different stuff. You know? That's, and yet we get to do it together. That's the beautiful thing. And we get to celebrate who each other is. That's a beautiful thing. And so what we've been given here is a, um, is a model of what it looks like to grow in and through your faith. So let's ask us another simple question. What produces poor leadership? Well, I'm going to take us back to Scripture again and uh, allow Peter to talk to us. Peter said, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So this is pretty scary little description here. You read it for what it is. This is the first century church. This is only 40 years old church. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you and with, with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been handed over them, hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Man, it's heavy stuff, eh? And so what you've got up there, if you just summarize this, you can see the second line, it says they've got false teachers among you. Then it goes on to say that they're going to secretly introduce destructive heresies. Okay, so they're going to 
fool you with the things that they tell you. And then it goes on, verse uh, 2 there, it says, Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. In other words, they're going to tell you fibs, they're going to tell you lies to get your money. Okay? Now, I don't have to throw anybody under the bus to tell you what's been happening for 2,000 years, do I? Because human nature is human nature. It just manifests itself differently. Some of the younger guys on staff last year were having a bit of a laugh because they, they got this, um, this website that they've been jumping on recently. It's called Preacher's Sneakers. Have any of you heard of it? Preacher's Sneakers? Trust you, Ben. Eh? You're probably giving Sam a hard time about it, eh? So what Preacher's Sneakers is, is this website that exposes the fact that um, some of the megastar pastors, particularly in the sort of hipster range, people who are 20 years younger than me, in other words, um, are getting sponsored by these um, fashion companies to wear their clothes and their shoes. And so they've got all these different pictures of pastors preaching wearing $5,000 Adidas shoes. And so they're doing this to essentially promote the shoes without promoting the shoes. So they get a free pair of shoes, and you know it just seems that they acknowledge what it is that these guys are wearing. And I, and I look at this and I think, Man, this is just such dangerous stuff, isn't it? It really, really is. You know, I know that Hannah's and Hellenstein's are good Jewish names. And so that's where good Christians should find their clothes. Tallulah, yeah, Tallulah, Tallulah too. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's funny the other day I took a picture of something that was in Tallulah too. I said, honey, I've seen you wearing this the last couple of years. Have you just donated it? Yep. So anyway, okay, that's cool. That's what happens. Share the love. Culture begets culture. Um, I was in Accra in Ghana about 12 years ago at a Baptist World Alliance conference, and we, we did a tour of the town, the center of the town, and it was a Christian guy taking us, explaining to us how the city worked. And we went past this huge stadium, sorry, a huge um, church, looked like, more like a stadium, but it just had this big roof over it with no walls, which is pretty common in Africa. And uh, I said, what's this all about? She says, well, this was a church. I said, what do you mean, was a church? She says, well, 10,000 people used to come here to church. I said, whoa, really? What's going on? You say, it has been, it was. She says, yeah, well, the pastor was really keen that he could express the love of God and the faithfulness of God by having his own airplane. And so, therefore, the church worked hard to get him his own aeroplane. But he said, every Sunday, they ended the service with the same altar call. I said, oh, what was all that about? He said, well, they split the church into four parts. And uh, anybody who had health problems, go over there and we pray for you. Anybody who wanted more money, go over there and we pray for you. Anybody who wanted a spouse, you go over there and we pray for you. Anybody who wanted a visa to enter America went over here. And I was like, you are kidding me. He says, no. And he said, it all blew up, you know, because promises were being made on behalf of God. And when people's visas didn't turn up, or they didn't get married, or they didn't get healed, or they didn't get wealthy, God doesn't work. Okay? Overly simplistic. And I think the guy probably just flew off in his airplane to do it again somewhere else. But you see, we've got culture begetting culture. And the inappropriate use of Scripture 
promotes the inappropriate use of Scripture. It's very easy to um, fill, fill yourself up with what you want your ears to hear, as opposed to living in the tension of an unanswered prayer or a question that just looks too big to answer. You see, by default, we look for easy answers. We look for simple answers that explain the world around us. That's why conspiracy theories are going out the door at the moment. Okay, because we're looking for easy answers, simple answers for a complex world. So Paul said this, and this is the thing that really gets me. This is the hardest part of this talk for me. Paul said, how do I show leadership? Well, he goes, he says this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So Paul's saying, how do I explain what it means to be a Christian? He just fronts up and he goes, I want you to be like me. I want you to be like me. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's a tough challenge for all of us, eh? You know, if you said to your kids, if you've got children, hey, if you want to be a Jesus follower, just do what I do and you'll be sweet. You know, young person, talk to your friends, say, if you want to follow Jesus, just, just watch me and you'll get it right. You know, Paul talks about this in the context of him sacrificially serving the church. Let's see what he says here. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. See, he's saying this again, our example. We were not idle when we were with you, uh, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it, potluck lunch. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. So the bigger picture of everything that Paul was doing was to say, this is how it works. This is how you can live a Christian life. You know, not being a burden to anyone, but living productively. Um, Paul also said it in this way. He said this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now, take the word me out of there and put your own name in there. Whew, that's challenging, isn't it? So, so Paul is not only preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he's living the gospel of the kingdom, he's demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom, and he's prepared to say, judge me, judge me on the basis of what I do, who I am, how I conduct my life, how I, uh, how I do my relationships, etc., etc., etc. Therefore, choose chooses. Therefore, choose your leaders wisely. Therefore, choose your leaders wisely. And um, when I say choose your leaders, I mean there's le people leading you everywhere. Okay? On television, uh, YouTube, the stuff you follow, the stuff you watch. You know, as soon as you jump on YouTube and watch something, the algorithm kicks in and gives you more of the same. So you ultimately believe what it is you want to believe because it'll just feed you what you want to believe. Um, the people who you hang out with are leading you. And so it goes on. There's leadership happening everywhere. So I want to finish now. And so I'm going to finish with um, 
what I think is the ultimate description of leadership, something you're very familiar with from Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That picture there that Paul paints of the humility of Christ and then God elevating him out of that servanthood and out of that humility is a picture of what the kingdom of God is all about. If you, if you, if you go for the bottom, if you aim for the bottom, God's going to elevate you. If you're going to go to be a servant, if you're going to be the sort of leader who looks out for others and seeks and celebrates who they are around you, that going for the bottom is going to be a reversal of what it is that the world thinks leadership is always about. And it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's an upside-down kingdom that's radically transformed the world. It's been happening for 2,021 years, and I think we're on to a good thing. I think we're on to a good thing. So I'm going to invite the team to come out and lead us. We're probably dragging, I'm dragging the feet a little bit here on this talk, but um, maybe you guys can give us a, a bit of a tighter version of that song. But I just really want them to, everyone to just participate in this song as a way of um, just seeking God's blessing over us in this year, as we begin this year. This, this song um, came out during the first lockdown, um, and it, it's, it just, just took off around the world, and you'll see why if you haven't heard it before. But um, I just want to lead us in prayer. Father, as we um, read scripture, we just want to have um, real wisdom about how it is that we see ourselves functioning and how we see um, the leadership around us functioning. Lord, we just want to have a nose for truth, the ability to discern what is right and proper and appropriate. Um, and this is always challenging because we struggle against powers and principalities that as we can see in Scripture, scripture today, we're, we're there 2,000 years ago. People's greed, people's depravity, people's desire to lie just to win favor. And, and these things um, are still with us today. And so we pray, Lord, that collectively we can hold each other to account, that we can be our brother and sister's keeper, that we can draw alongside people and, and love them into the truth. And so, God, for all those amongst us here who lead, we just want to pray today that you would keep us on task, keep us in our lane, keep us faithful, keep reminding us that the world's way is not your way. Let us aim for the bottom every time. Let us be a servant every time. 
that we might be your people and people would know that you are our God because, as Paul said, because of what I do. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Darren. Thanks, team.